Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In uh, this episode, we'll be once again continuing our look at Thomas Jefferson's letters. Specifically, in this episode, we'll look at the letters uh, that Jefferson wrote between uh, 1790 and 1799. It only covers about 100 pages of the volume, but obviously it covers a big chunk of time when a lot was going on in Thomas Jefferson's life. Uh, we looked at the Paris letters uh, in the last episode, and of course he gets recalled to the United States uh, to become Secretary of State for George Washington. And one issue that's going, really going to be in these letters are his internal conflict within the administration of George Washington over what he saw as a shift towards monarchical tendencies with, uh, you know, with the, the, the Federalist faction or the Federalist Party, if you will. Um, and that's going to continue. This leads to his resignation in 1792, largely over conflicts over the overall direction of the United States and, and attitude towards France and Great Britain. Um, then he's going to be involved in various uh, politics, building up to this kind of a Republican Revolution or this Democratic Republican Revolution. Now, also, their faction was called the Democratic Republicans, and that, of course, leads to his election as president in 1800. Um, and I think the most interesting, maybe, aspect of this period is this is still before there was like clear functional institutionalized parties in the United States, but there were factions and there were attitudes and tendencies in government. Um, and because of the way the Constitution was written. Uh, both Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson was vice president under John Adams, so they were political enemies. You know, of course, friends in real life that they wrote letters to one another quite a lot. But still, the, there's deep factional differences within that administration. It doesn't come out too much in the letters directly. Uh, he does continue to talk about his concern for monarchical tendencies, but he's he seems to put on a fairly good public face and not uh, directly undermining. The presidency but of course uh, in in 1800 he is elected president and that leads to a constitutional change which makes it not very likely or almost impossible that you know well it happened from time to time where you'd have a president and vice president for different parties but that was because it was chosen like in the case of lincoln and andrew johnson um, but uh so it kind of leads us up to the 12th amendment but we're not going to quite get to the election in this chunk we're only going to get to 1799 when he was still vice president but there's um, obviously a lot of interesting things to talk about here. Just, but it's a very political set of, of letters. We don't get that much into his personal life here, even though he's, he has several children with Sally Hemings during this period of time. But again, as I've said several times, this is something that just doesn't come up in his personal letters at all. So uh, it's kind of interesting to think about in the context of his life and who he, you know, who, about his sex life after his divorce and, and who was involved in that. But obviously it doesn't come up with just letters, so it's just something we have to kind of thrust in artificially into this, into this conversation. So anyways, let's, let's just jump into these letters, starting with 1790. Uh, so in 1790, he's appointed Secretary of, of State, uh, Sally Hemings' uh, child, one that Jefferson fathered back in, back in Paris, dies. Um, uh, this is also when he writes his report on weights and measures, which we looked at in a previous episode. But he already, immediately coming back to the United States, has fears about uh, the growing monarchical tendencies in the United States. Um, it's in 1791, just to look a little bit forward, it's in 1791 that he loses the bank fight with, uh, with Hamilton. Hamilton, of course, pushed the, the National Bank. Jefferson opposed it, but it got you know, Washington backed and it got passed anyways. 
Um, and it's interesting. He fires this guy. He hires this guy, Philippe Frenot. We don't. I don't think we have any letters to him, but he hires him. You know, in the State Department. But it's essentially a way to promote his alternative view um, more externally in ways you couldn't do publicly as Secretary of State. And it's also in that year that he makes this kind of Tom, the Thomas Paine error, the, the thing that has sometimes been explained for why there was such deep animosity between Adams and Jefferson uh, in this period of time. Uh, a lot of it's politics, but uh, we could also look at this event and I'll talk about that. We got letters speaking to that. Now, as I said, there's not really many letters that speak to his personal life in this section. I'm sure he wrote them. It's just they weren't edited and collected in this um, particular um, selection. But we do have a couple to his daughters, and they're, they're always fun to read about him. You know, seeing, seeing Jefferson as like the single dad. Um, you know, it's easier to be a single dad when you're a rich guy with a bunch of slaves but, uh, and, and famous and, you know, in public life. But um, still, it's, it's kind of a nice little window into that to read these letters. Uh, he writes a letter to Mary Jefferson, that's the younger daughter, about, uh, you know, just like the weather and the whip whippoorwills and swallows and the birds and strawberries and things. It's kind of a nice, sweet letter to to the younger daughter. But he, he scolds her. He scolds her for not writing back. I, I love this way he kind of, you know, complains about how these girls don't write back to him as often as he writes to them. He says, I've received your letter of May 23rd, which was an answer to mine of May 2nd, but I wrote you also on the 23rd of May, so that you still owe me an answer to that, which I hope is now on the road. Um, in matters of correspondence as well as of money, you must never be in debt. It's an interesting um, uh, lesson, obviously, in the days of email, it's, it's, it's not as important. But yeah, you should answer your emails too, I, I would say, and that would be a good advice to to my daughter would be to answer their emails. Uh, he has a harsher letter for Martha Jefferson, uh, who's already married at this time, and he actually says, this is a scolding letter for you. I've not received a script of the pen at home since I left it, which is now 11 weeks. I think it is easy for you to write me a letter once a week, which will be but once in three weeks for each of you when I write one every week, who have not one moment's repose from business to the first of the last of the week. Perhaps you think I have not anything to say. You have nothing to say. It is a great deal to say that you are well, or that one has a cold, or another has a fever. Besides, there is not a spring of grass that shoots uninteresting to me, nor anything that moves from yourself down to burge or gristle. Write then, my dear daughter, punctually on the day, and Mr. Randolph and Polly on theirs. I suspect that you have news to tell me of yourself, of the most tender interest to me. Why silent then? So really, really nice. It's um. Uh, this pleading, poor Thomas Jefferson pleading for 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 uh, letters from his daughter. I suppose it's it's just a more adult lesson that he to the one he gave Mary Jefferson. But I think I, I like to imagine he's a little bit lonely, kind of in public life, surrounded by these monarchists who are trying to overthrow the republic from from within, and and he can only find respite in letters from his daughter. Okay, not too much more to say about politics in this or personal life. It's, it's really going to be politically focused. Um, and let's just jump into this. I don't know how many of these letters specifically you have to look at because a lot of them hover around this fear he has of, of the way the United States is going towards what he thinks is monarch monarchism. Uh, he writes to George Mason in February 4th, 1791, uh, saying that essentially the republic's being washed away by what he sees as kind of a what he calls a heretical sect of a, a, a faction that's emerging with very with ideas very contrary to that other revolution uh, 
Now, this is a common thing you find in revolutions, of course. Revolutions open up doors and open up political discourse in ways that didn't exist prior to the revolution, right? And that's true of every single revolution. Uh, even the authoritarian ones that have emerged, they have opened the door. If you even think about the Soviet Union, right? In the early days, there were the Soviets, and there was worker councils, and the peasant councils, and women got involved, and you had the anarchists there, and you had the Makhno in Ukraine, and uh, you know, the Bolsheviks. It, it, I mean, it really did open up, it broadened the political debate beyond what existed in the in the period of, of, of the Tsar, right? And that's the case in the United States, too. So uh, the fact that Jefferson thinks there's only kind of one outcome of the revolution, and that's kind of this republicanism that he's representing, it, it, and these other ideas are kind of radical, is a bit, you know, it's, it's a you know, it's a, it's a bit self-centered, right? That my ideas are the right ones, right? That I have, I knew what was right for the country all along. And all these other ideas are, are false. Um, but anyway, you always have these tensions, right? And, you know, the Chinese Revolution, you had the bureaucratic versus kind of the mass line of that Mao advocated. And then the bureaucratic one sort of wins out. Uh, and that's happening here too, right? You got kind of the, not comparing Jefferson to Mao directly, but both have more of a bottom-up uh, idea of, of of republicanism and eventually it's kind of a democracy versus uh, the idea that there kind of has to be some kind of stronger government and leadership and planning almost and organizing society and and, and you know that hierarchy is going to be a part of government always and, and, and that you might you know kind of learn some things from the way monarchs do things I mean there was that whole discussion of you know would would the United States would, would they have a king right like a constitutional monarchy I know that was played around with by Maybe even Hamilton in the Constitutional Convention, and then what do we call him? You know, do we use this language like Your Majesty or or whatever? They finally decided on Mr. President, but there were people who wanted a more kind of aristocratic feel to it. But anyways, uh, this is what he writes to George Mason on this issue, um, and it, it sounds very similar to what he writes to other people, especially Madison. He writes it to Adams a little bit, and he writes it directly to George Washington um, in very long letters. He says, what is said of in our country of, of the fiscal arrangements now going on? I really fear their effect when I consider the present temper of the southern states. Whether these measures be right or wrong abstractly, more attention should be paid to the general opinion. However, all will pass. The excise will pass. The bank will pass. The only corrective of what is corrupt in our present form of government will be the augmentation of their numbers in the lower house. So as to get a more agricultural representation, which may put that interest above that of the stock jobbers. Um, so, and he actually, previous to this, he actually says directly, he, he really thinks Republicanism is being sapped by, by these the things passed by, is this the, I don't know which Congress is, the second, third Congress, you know, but he's talking about everything in that kind of Washington's first, first term, everything coming through. And he thinks the hope is in the states, which are uh, going to have, in, in the lower house, like the voice of the agricultural states in the lower house. Where the the small because in this it's the small more New England states can dominate the Senate more than the House at that time. Thanks, of course, to the three fifths clause of the U.S. Constitution, which gave the South over representation in in the House. Let's not forget that. We'll come back to this question with some other letters when we we get a little bit more into his fears. Um, this is still pretty early on. This is still 1791 when he first returned to the capital. Um, he's got a, a eulogy to to Ben Franklin here, um, which was dated February 1791, given to Reverend William Smith. 
we, as we can expect, he had nothing but good things to say about, about Ben Franklin. But he throws in like a kind of a pro-French argument here saying, you know, like the French, they really like Ben Franklin. And I was there because he was part of that diplomatic corps that went to Europe in the, in the 1780s with, with Adams and Franklin. Those were the ones who went. And, you know, he still says like, well, the French really liked Franklin. So that's proof the French are, are good. You know, he's always kind of sticking in these pro-French arguments and even when they don't really seem to, to fit. Um, I really like this letter to Major Lafont. Um, and I don't know who he is, I guess some French general. But he's talking about the plans to build a capital, you know, Washington, D.C., right? This was something worked out in the first early Congresses was the, the compromise of having the capital in the center of the country, but kind of between Maryland and, and Virginia, um, between a big state and a small state. Of course, there, that was part of a kind of a compromise that was worked out. Um, but it, it creates this opportunity, right, to build a city from scratch. And that's got to be exciting to someone of an architectural mind, someone who's interested in building, someone who's interested in uh, these cities. He wrote about this in France to some people about the kind of architecture he saw, and he kind of promotes a more classical style of architecture in the United States. He, of course, does that himself with Monticello. Uh, he writes this, uh, I should prefer the adoption of some one of the models of antiquity which have the appropriation of thousands of years. And for the president's house, I should prefer a celebrated fronts of modern buildings, which have already greatly received the apparition of all good judges." End quote. So he has some idea of what could be built there. And, you know, just the, you know, maybe there's more letters that speak to this somewhere else or by other people, but the excitement of building a city, right, from scratch. It's not about tearing down New York or remaking new capital or working with the existing structure. It's like, you know, blank slate almost. And what you can do with it, you can create a planned city. And you go there now and it's clearly an imperial city, but it has this, you know, it's the center of the greatest empire in world history. But it's also, you know, a Republican city. It's also got this, it's got, it's a city of memory. It's a city of monuments. It's a city uh, where there is this effort to kind of cultivate the imagery, the symbolism of, of Republicanism, if you will. Um, what else? Uh, a very long letter to George Washington in, in 1791, uh, which talks about uh, the Burke-Payne debate. This is right when The Rights of Man was published by Thomas Paine, right? So if you don't know that history or if you forgot it, I mean, I talked a little bit about it months and months ago when I looked at Tom Paine. But uh, Burke, of course, attacks the French Revolution, arguing that the American Revolution was good because it was built on the rights inherited from England, but the French were kind of didn't have that inherited rights, so they're uh, kind of an overtly like too radical uh, and too quick. They're not building off things that they've inherited. They're trying to start from scratch. Thomas Paine says, "No, these rights are universal. They're they're merely need to be grabbed and seized by the people." Um, so he writes this letter, kind of talking about this book coming out, and he kind of throws in a stab to to um, to stab at Adams, even at one point calling him like a political heretic for, for turning his back on republicanism. So he does once in a while publicly attack, attack Adams in this period. Although we're gonna see he kind of makes a, a mistake about this um, later on. Um, what, what else do we have here? Uh, uh, one little document, one little letter on, on, on Indians. Yeah, he writes to Charles Carroll, who again, I don't know who he is, um, 
but he's concerned about the the fact that Indian violence is taking place in the in the frontier region. Of course, the revolution opened up the door to my you know settlement across the Appalachian Mountains, and it happened almost immediately, right? And part of that would be part of that consequence would be re resistance and violence against these settlers. And so Jefferson's concerned that this is going to kind of open the door to the need to kind of invest in in an empire in the West. And we saw in other letters, he kind of envisions eventually the United States will settle there and Americans will settle there. At the same time, though, he fears what an empire would mean in terms of governance and, and kind of building what, what actually an empire would mean, maintaining it. And one fear he has here is the standing army. Um, so he's trying to say, what can our policy towards Indians be that can stop this violence, but also not lead down the road of, of kind of imperialism or, or worse than empire, I guess, would be the standing army idea. And so he just kind of weakly says, well, we need to have peace. He calls it the, we need to change our tomahawk into a golden chain of friendship. He doesn't really say how it can happen, but, but that's what he wants. And that's going to, this kind of idea is going to affect his Indian policy. It's, he's going to come down with an assimilationist argument that the Indians need to be assimilated, as we saw with the, the Indian speeches um, a few episodes ago. Um, so what else in here? Oh, um, this may be, yeah, I think it's up to now the only letter he, he, he wrote to a black person, and it's to Benjamin, Benjamin Banneker. Benjamin Banneker, uh, if you've forgotten your African-American history, was a very important uh, American scientist, uh, one of, if not the first uh, African-American scientist in the United States, um, very influential in astronomy and, and, and writing almanacs and meteorology and things like that. Um, he compared to what he writes about black people in other places, I, you know, he kind of gives a different face here. Obviously, he's writing to uh, um, an African American, and that may temper his language here. Uh, he he kind of grants more equality than he normally does when he writes about black people. I would say, um, and maybe he's just being politic here. Um, but anyways, I don't think it, it comes for a major change in his attitudes. But, but who knows? Um, he says, uh, he's right, responding to an almanac that he helped write, and he says, nobody wishes more than I do to see such proofs as you exhibit that nature has given our, to our black brethren talents equal to those of other colors of men, and that the appearance of a want of them is owing merely to the degraded conditions of their existence, both in Africa and America. I can add with trust that nobody wishes more ardently to see a good system commence for raising a condition, both of body and mind, to see what it ought to be, as fast as as the imbecility of their present existence uh, will admit. Uh, he doesn't kind of state the corollary, which is, I hope, I wish. Uh, I think under the surface, he doesn't really have optimism that this is possible because of his deep um, racism. But he, he, he says, I hope, right? And, and that's maybe as, um, as optimistic as he can get here. Um, what else? Oh, I, I should mention the... The Adams and uh, the rights of man debate because that's that's kind of relevant. Uh, we got to know. I mean, I don't even know what all went on here. Um, it's it's a letter he writes to John Adams, and what he writes it's a, basically an apology to John Adams, and it, it's dated J July seventeenth, seventeen ninety one. And it's, it seems to be a sincere apology. Uh, there's a lot of pathos in the way he, he, he writes this, the way he presents it to, to Aunt John Adams. But he, here's how it's, what happens is described here. It's essentially he, there was a copy of Wright's Vanity being passed around. 
and one of them was from a Mr. Beckley. And he wrote, uh, Jefferson wrote like some notes about Rights of Man to Beckley, and in that he criticizes John Adams of, of kind of these monarchical tendencies he, he wrote about. In fact, he says, um, what does he admit to, to saying here? He says, I added that I was glad it was to be reprinted here and that something was to be publicly said against those political heresies which had sprung up among us, etc. Now, I don't have the original document, so I don't know if he pointed out Adams by name, but everyone kind of knew it was Adams was who he was picking on here. Um, and he didn't intend it to be published, that's the point. But when this edition of The Rights of Man was just printed, I guess it was sort of just plagiarized, right? Just, the printers just copied it. I, I, you know, I don't know if Tom Paine got any money for the sale of The Rights of Man in America, but Jefferson supported being printed. He didn't know that this letter would become like a, a forward to The Rights of Man, right? So there was this edition of The Rights of Man with this forward by Thomas Jefferson that publicly critiqued John Adams. And... Then this gets criticized by um, Publicola. Publicola, I think that's how it's pronounced. That's the pen name of, of John Quincy Adams, um, I think. I don't think it's John Adams directly. I, I, think, I think it was John Quincy Adams who kind of made the public defense of his father using this pen name. And then, of course, this was really an embarrassment for John Adams and for Thomas Jefferson. And, and so he's, this letter is an apology to John Adams, saying he didn't intend it to happen. And like he even says, I forgot what I wrote. I just kind of jotted down some comments and sent it off. And, and he didn't know it would be published. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I kind of believe that the, this is implausible to me, what's described here, uh, that it was kind of a misinterpretation of, of what this letter was really about and who was intended to, to read it. Obviously, none of us would want our private emails, you know, published. And that, that's sort of what happened to Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, it, it becomes a bit of a scandal. And, and I don't know if it's the, it's the reason there was this break, this public breach between Adams and, and Thomas Jefferson. I think there's much more going on in the, in politically there to, about that. But anyways, th those are all letters from, from 1790 and 1791. So let's go back to Jefferson's biography here and, and, and fill in what happens after 71. Well, um, so he's still Secretary of State in 1792. Um, and a lot of what he's working on is dealing with like the British forts up in the West. Because um, you know, although the peace was signed and the, this land was given to the United States, the British kept a lot of forts like in kind of dubious regions out in the West, kind of on the Canadian border. And obviously this was... Uh, something the United States wanted to, to work out. And it wouldn't even be worked out until the War of, of 1812, obviously. But that's, uh, and there's growing conflict with the administration over how harsh the United States should be against Britain. Jefferson promoting more of a aggressive policy towards, towards Britain. Um, then in 1793, he's fighting really to get the United States to recognize the French Republic. And this is something that the United States equivocates on. Um, for Jefferson, not only does it mean we're not supporting a fellow republic yeah, in Europe, uh, which could kind of spread our revolution and our ideas into Europe, it, it basically is a betrayal of the, of the treaty, right? And remember, he wrote this report to the administration, to Washington, one of his public papers, where he said that it's very, very important that we, we support the French and that our treaty with with the France was not with the Louis the Sixteenth; it was to the French people, and we have a duty to to back that up, and that means recognizing France. Now, of course, the United States equivocates on that for for the time being, 
Um, this leads to growing conflict within the administration, of course. He urges at one point retaliation on British tariffs, which is something the administration is not willing to do either. And all of this culminates in Jefferson's 1793 resignation from, from Secretary of State. And then in 1794, he simply returns to Monticello and, and, and kind of goes into a semi-temporary retirement, leaving public life for, for a period of time. It's only going to last a few years, but he's going to spend a number of years in Monticello. It's at this time that he frees Robert Hemings. Now, Robert Hemings is Sally's older brother, and I think he actually had to purchase his freedom from Thomas Jefferson. But Jefferson only freed two slaves during his life. He freed others in his will. Um, but during his life, he only freed two. And this is the first of his slaves he freed uh, was, was Robert Hemings. I mean, this is some of the strong evidence that he did indeed find these children. I think there's no doubt uh, that... that this happened, but there are some people who would say it's like Jefferson's brother, or, you know, the DNA evidence isn't conclusive. Um, but I mean, the DNA evidence plus all the decisions he makes and the timeline and when Sally had her kids, it's, it's all so obvious that um, he was the father. But um, he freed her older brother. Um, so. But he's, he goes back to Monticello at, at this point. Um, and not long after returning, uh, Harriet Hemings is born. She would die a couple years later. But so uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a little bit. Uh, but so what letters come out? What did he write in 1792 to 1794? Well, I just want to focus on a, on a handful of them. One is a, a letter to George Washington again. Uh, May 23rd, 1792, where he's again warning uh, Washington of, of these growing monarchical tendencies within the United States, uh, basically coming from his policies and the policies of, of, of Hamilton and the Federalist um, faction in the government. Uh, a lot going on in this le letter, actually. He, he predicts a growing sectional conflict, saying that this is becoming more and more of a, of a conflict between the North and the South, which, of course, is very ominous in its... In, in its predictions of, of kind of sectional conflict in the United States. But I would also say that he, he does seem to make a distinction between, and maybe this is polit politic, politic, political in, 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 a, in a, kind of assuming the best of Washington, is he makes a distinction between the Republican Federalists, who he says espouse the same government for its intrinsic merits, you know, basically they're the good ones, um, who support government for it, for its merits, but don't necessarily want to undo the revolution. And he says, like, they're being disarmed and weakened by this other faction within the Federalist faction, which is the monarchical, um, monarchical Federalists. Um, he also at one point here suggests that there needs to be kind of a, a greater democracy, and this is going to be the corrective to monarchic, mar monarchism, um, and that will be basically... Uh, you know, if more people are represented in government in some way, then that's going to be a, a, a instant check on, on what he sees as the overreach of, of this monarchical federalist faction. But he really sees it as a quite powerful conspiracy almost. He writes, that this corrupt squadron deciding the voice of their legislatures have manifested their dispositions to get rid of the legislatures, the, or sorry, the limitations imposed by the Constitution on the general legislature, limitations on the faith of which the states acceded to that instrument. That the ultimate object of all this is to prepare the way for a change from the present Republican form of government to that of a monarchy, of which the English Constitution is to be the model. That this was contemplated at the convention is no secret, because its partisans have made none of it. 
to affect it then was impractical, but they are still eager for their object and are predisposing everything for its ultimate attainment. End quote. So he gets into a little conspiracy theory here, which uh, I always think is an unfortunate um, path of thought, but, but there it is. Um, he writes to Thomas Paine here as well, basically uh, praising him for the publication of the rights of man and uh, you know, seeing him as a good advocate for republicanism against this growing trend of, of what he sees as monarchism. Another letter to George Washington, this one directly about the conflict within the administration, of course. And, and this is getting close to his resignation. This is September 1792. He'd stay on as Secretary of State for another year, but he's really laying out the, the groundwork in a very, very long letter. It's almost 10 pages, but he goes point by point in explaining the conflict uh, he has with, with Hamilton. He doesn't seem to throw Hamilton in with this monarchical conspiracy he was alluding to in the other letter, though. So he's, he's a little bit more diplomatic in how he deals with them. But he does lay out the heart of the conflict, the one we learned about in, in our U.S. survey courses or in high school history, that Hamilton took this concept of the general welfare or took you know the, that the, the idea of implied powers, right? There's all these implied powers in, in the Constitution for both Congress and the executive branch. Whereas Jefferson held to really only powers are those that are strictly listed, um, and that if anything is is we should be generous with it's the it's something like the Tenth Amendment which gives um, reserves rights to the to the people and the states. Um, but yeah, it's just a useful review of of the of the conflict. Um, in another letter, he he writes about the and this is to William Short, who I'm not sure who that is, but. He writes to William Short about the importance of the French Revolution to world history. And he, he kind of almost inflates its, its significance more than that of the American Revolution. I, I think there's good reasons for doing that in hindsight from a historical point of view. Um, the, the transformation in, in the West by the French Revolution was probably greater than that of the American. But he, he really sees that as the, the ground zero of the struggle for, for liberty in the world. He writes... Uh, the liberty of the whole earth was depending on the issue of the contest and was ever such a prize won with so little innocent blood. My own affection have been deeply wounded by some of the martyrs to this cause, but rather that it should have failed, I would have seen half the earth desolated. Were there but an Adam and Eve left in every country and left free, it would be better than it is now. I have expressed to you my sentiments because they are really those of 99 in a 100 of, of our citizens. The universal feast, the rejoicings which have taken, which had which we've had on account of the successes of the French, show the genuine effusions of their hearts. You have been wounded by the sufferings of your friends and have by these circumstances been hurried into the temper of mind, which would be extremely disrelished if known to your countrymen. The reserve of the President of the United States has never permitted me to discover a light in which he viewed it. Um, so a few things here, and the whole letter kind of speaks in this way. One is, you know, if the world has to burn for republicanism, for liberty, so be it. I mean, that's... That's really Jefferson's radicalism here. And he wrote, in, as we saw in the last episode, he was writing, you know, the blood of liberty is watered with the, or the tree of liberty is watered with the blood of tyrants. Um, but also here, he, he seems to inflate certainly the support of the French Revolution. And, you know, there's always a, a bit of a bias when everyone, everyone looks at their friends, right? Especially someone like Jefferson, he probably, everyone around him praises the French Revolution, except a handful of people in, in 
in the you know in government who he's in conflict with in conflict with so he of course comes away with this saying well obviously everyone agrees with me everyone agrees that that the french revolution is the greatest thing that happened in world history and we're all toasting and feasting to the french um, behind closed doors so it's a bit uh hyperbolic i suppose but uh, just another window into jefferson's support for and, and deep affection for the French Revolution. Uh, he wrote to James Madison at one point in here. Uh, yeah, this was in 1794, after he's already resigned, uh, when he's in Monticello, about the Whiskey Rebellions. Of course, Jefferson wasn't in the government during the Whiskey Rebellion. Now, he doesn't necessarily support them. He doesn't come out like, well, yeah, we need to go whiskey rebels. But he does think the excise tax and the inclusion of that in the Constitution was an overstep and, and, and that they're, they're sort of right, but he seems not so supportive of, of a white rebellion. He also talks in this letter about the rise of democratic societies. And he's starting, I think, to have a kind of a, a bolder attitude towards uh, where popular sentiment is in the United States. He's starting to see kind of the foundation of what will be the revolution of 1800, as he calls it, um, in things like the, 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 what was the group called? The Society of the Cincinnati, right? These were uh, Revolutionary War veterans who formed a patriotic society. But he, he really saw their, their values more on the Democratic Republican side, not, not with the monarchists. Um, so this letter really speaks to what he sees as a kind of a general support for his political positions across the nation. Right? And then the last one from this period of time I want to talk about is, is just a really long and rather interesting letter to John Taylor, uh, written from Monticello in December of, of 1794, which is all about farming and innovation. So if you want to know what Jefferson was doing, uh, now he wasn't farming, he, he had slaves to do that for him, but he seems to be thinking about innovations in farming. He talks about, he writes about crop rotation, um, the, the, you know, the condition of the fields and, and the growing of clover as a kind of restorative crop uh, for pasture land and things like that. So, um, you know, this, the kind of the scientific study of agriculture, the, the investigation into better farming techniques and then sharing it with other people is something Jefferson had an interest in. He certainly was a, a polymath uh, and, and engaged in a lot of these, these interests. I, I guess most of the stuff he had the slaves doing, though, I, I don't have the image of Jefferson getting his hands dirty in the fields um, and you know, planting clover or whatever. But anyways, that's, those, are, those are letters from his Secretary of State period into his early, re, kind of his little retirement in, in 74 and 75. So in, in 1795, Jeff, uh, Jefferson will remain active in politics. He's going to denounce uh, Jay's treaty. Uh, anything that would kind of make closer relationships with Great Britain is something he's uh, rather opposed to. Um, it's also when Harriet Hemings is born, uh, 1795. Harriet Hemings will die in 1797, so another uh, child who died. Um, I think Sally had six kids, and was it four survived? Um, but, you know, the timing, again, it just, you know, it's, it's clear when he comes back to Monticello, this, this child's born. In 1796, he frees James Hemings, so that's the second um, one he frees. And this one, I think with, with James Hemings, he, um, 
Yeah, so it says here on Wikipedia, James Hemingway was required to train his brother Peter for three years before he got his freedom. Um, so that's also the older brother of Sally. Um, so yeah, so it says here too, Jefferson freed five more slaves in his will, all males from the extended Hemings family, including Madison and Eston Hemings, his two natural children. Harriet was the only female slave he allowed to go free. All right, so that's that. Was there another one named Harriet? I guess so, I'm looking at the timeline again. It says, uh, Sally Hemings gives birth to a daughter, Harriet, perhaps named for Harriet Randolph, the favorite cousin of Jefferson. The child dies in 1797. So there must have been another one. But um, anyways, it's Mabel's granddaughter. Uh, I should make a family tree, uh, Hemings family tree, before, before the next episode. Um, so anyways, it's, it's, it's 1796, he's still hanging out in Monticello, that he expands and rebuilds Monticello. Um, but he continues to complain of monarchists in, in government to the people he's writing, people like James Madison. Uh, in 1797, he uh, becomes vice president. Of course, he, he you know, was in the running for president in 1796. And I will point out that, you know, I, there's no letter that says, like, I'm running for president. I, I don't think that's really how it happened in those days. It was more informal. You know, the, the electors vote, right? And, well, in the time, of course, let, let, let's, let's step back here. The way the Constitution says it is each elector to the Electoral College votes twice, right? And then you kind of have ranked voting. So the person who gets the majority becomes president, and then whoever has the largest plurality after that is vice president, right? And this was intended before there was parties, right? There wasn't the idea of parties, so there would just be a panel of people running, and then the best would get the most votes, right? And that made sense, and it worked for two elections for Washington because of uh, the clear support for Washington across the country and across the electors. But in the 1796 election, of course, John Adams got the most votes. And then second place was Thomas Jefferson, who, and these were political enemies, right, of different factions. So you had a really awkward situation where the president and the vice president were essentially of opposite parties and antagonistic. It's not like they, they weren't running mates, right? So how to fix this, right? So immediately they started talking about how to fix this. And the ultimate solution was the 12th Amendment, which would not be passed till after this, the disaster of the 1800 election. And I say disaster because um, basically each ballot had, was it Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson tied because each Democratic Republican voter voted one vote for Jefferson and one for Burr. Uh, and they were constantly tied and there, it took several ballots before there was a resolution to that. Um, and so the solution was then have each elector vote twice, once for president, once for vice president, distinct votes, not, not just throw them all into one, one pile. Again, it makes more sense with parties, but it's an acknowledgement that there would be parties and there would be tickets and, and running mates and that kind of stuff. Um, so, but anyways, I don't see any letters that are like, well, I'm running for president or, or vote for me, or there's no like campaigning in any of these letters that I see. So it's... It's just something I noticed. Same thing in the in 1800. There's a, there's a few letters like after the election, which kind of talk about his victory, but not really much before. So these, if you read these letters, you don't even get a sense there was an election, really. Um, but in 1797, of course, he is he does become vice president. 
He also becomes head of the American Philosophical Society, and he begins to promote republicanism more and more openly in opposition to the, the, the presidency, to the president. Uh, in 1798, Sally has another child. Sally Cummings has another child. It's that year that you have the XYZ affair, which uh, um, embarrassed the French. And, uh, and of course, that's another point of conflict between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans over foreign policy. Um, that's when the Alien and Sedition Acts were passed as well, which Jefferson thought were a means to undermine the the political voice of, of radical Republican immigrants from places like Ireland. Um, and this leads in 1799 to Jefferson's authorship of the Kentucky Resolution, which we looked at before. Uh, Sally Hemings has another child who dies in, in 1799. So that's, uh, that's the rest of this period of time. Um, as for the letters, um, they're going to kind of feed off the, these issues of, of, his, of his idea that there needs to be some kind of rebirth in republicanism and his kind of searching for where that's going to be. In, in, in um, what's the date? In 1796, he writes to John Adams. This is uh, early in 1796, so he's still in that kind of a retirement. He writes to John Adams claiming that there needs to be a, an age of experiments in government. And basically, it's, he's pleading for kind of a rethinking or kind of a, a revolution in thinking, away from the Federalist to kind of a new approach. Um, and he talks about, you know, how experimentation is so effective in agriculture and in, in increasing output. He says, um, never was a finer canvas presented to work on than our countrymen. All of them engage in agriculture and the pursuits of honest industry, independent of their circumstances, enlightened as to their rights and firm in their habits of order and obedience to the laws. This, I hope, will be an age of experiments in government and that their basis will be founded on principles of honesty, not on mere force. We have seen no instance of this since the days of the Roman Republic, nor do we read of any before that. Either force or corruption has been the principle of every modern government, unless the Dutch perhaps be accepted. And I am in no way well informed enough to accept them absolutely. If ever the morals of a people could be made the basis of, of their own government, it is in our case. And he who could propose to govern such a people by the corruption of their legislature before he could have one night's quiet sleep must convince himself that the human soul as well as his body is immortal End quote. Um, kind of a, a nice sentiment there just in the, the faith of in the american people but this gives him confidence in kind of reworking and rethinking government because if if you don't have that optimism about the people then then you kind of are stuck with the, the basic federalist idea right that there has to be strong central leadership and sort of a kind of almost planning and, and hierarchy is not incompatible with republicanism. Um, what else do we have here? 1796, he writes an interesting letter to, to um, what's his name? Here, Philip Mazzi. Philip Mazzi was, is an Italian, was an Italian and he was uh, you know, he helped. He sold weapons to the United States during the during the Revolution. He was a longtime friend of Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson here is again thinking about revolution. He's he writes he writes about the spirit of of, of seventeen seventy six and the, you know and kind of how the moment is right for our the our natural love of liberty and and republican government to overthrow the, quote, Anglican monarchical and aristocratic party that sprung up 
whose avowed object is to draw us over the substance, as they've already done in the forms of the British government. Um, so this is a personal letter to a friend, but it expresses his, his same political views of, of kind of the need for, for a, a revolution. I see here plenty of backdrop to this concept of a revolution of 1800. It's really on Jefferson's mind. Of, of the, it's the moment to have kind of a, a washing away of government. And he's writing this as vice president uh, against his, his own, at least implied against his own um, president. Well, at this when we wrote that letter, he was kind of vice president-elect, I guess. Um, he does open 1787, 1797 with uh, kind of a need to have uh, kind of a public, at least, peace with John Adams. And he writes this to J James Madison, but he also included an enclosure with a letter he wrote to, to John Adams, basically saying, we're going to work together and, and, and we're all Americans, that, 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 that kind of language. Um, there's a couple letters here speaking to the need for American neutrality and the Napoleonic Wars and uh, the need for peace and commerce with, with all parties, not like siding with, with Great Britain. That's his, his greatest fear. Uh, he writes one to Elridge Jerry, who I'm not sure who that is again, but he did write one to Thomas Pickney. Pickney? Thomas Pickney was, of course, in the running in, in, in 1796 for president. I think he was like third or fourth place after Jefferson and Adams. So he, he was a, a fairly prominent public figure, somebody in government. And he's talking about the need for clear commerce. He does talk about Louisiana, the importance of opening up the Mississippi River to American trade, something he wrote about before. Um, but there's a, a general talking here about the need for, for um, a peaceful coexistence with, with, with Europe. Um, now, John, a letter to John Taylor from 1798. There's a bit of, there's not many letters from 1797 here. But uh, one he wrote to um, John Taylor, the editor here calls it Patience in the Reign of Witches, which, of course, my eye was immediately attracted to, to that, that title he gave, the editor gave. Now, John Taylor is someone he wrote before about farming, so he's been corresponding with John Taylor a little bit. But now he's using even harsher language for these, these monarchists calling them witches. So I just kind of, I'm enjoying the political rhetoric as it's evolving over time here. He, he writes, uh, seeing therefore that an association of men who will not quarrel with one another is a thing which never yet existed from the greatest confederacy of nations down to a town meeting or a vestry, seeing that we must have someone to quarrel with, I'd rather keep our New England associates for that purpose than to see our bickerings transferred to others. They are circumscribed within such narrow limits and their population so full that their numbers will ever be a minority and that they are marked like the Jews with such a peculiarity of the character as to constitute from that circumstance the natural division of our parties. A little patience, and we will see that the reign of witches passes over, their spells dissolve, and the people recovering their true sight restore their government to its true principles. It is true that in the meantime we are suffering deadly in spirit and incurring the horrors of a war and long oppression of enormous public debt. But who can say that would be the ends of a schism, and when and where they would end? Better keep together as we are, haul off from Europe as soon as we can, from all attachments to any portion of it. End quote. So the conspiracy of witches trying to pull the United States into this corrupt European conflicts, and especially Great Britain. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that's, that's probably enough 
I'm, I'm almost coming on an hour here, 50 minutes. So um, there's a few other nice letters here. I um, one, for instance, to to who is it? William. Sorry, here William Green Mumford, um, written in 1799, where he he writes about uh, the relationship between humanity and society. It's, it's some some good political theory here, actually, talking of uh, you know just you know the relationship between the best of human characteristics and government, and and you know that's a common uh, concern in Enlightenment thinking, right? That of course good, you know, kind of how does Thomas Paine put it? That government is created by our wickedness and and society by our goodness, right? And and I think see Jefferson basically agrees with that. Um, that government is a a projection of our worst features and not our best. And for that, we need to look to society, and and that we are basically social beings, and that that means creating societies and communities, um, and unfortunately, governments as well. Uh, but that's a common idea in the Enlightenment. But I, I like how he states it in that letter. But I'm running on a little bit long here, so um, I'm going to put an end to this. In the next episode, we'll be looking at Jefferson's letters from 1800 to 1807. Uh, so these are going to cover his presidency. So we'll, we'll, be, we'll see what he says as president now, where he can't just be a, a, a bomb thrower on the outside, throwing in political insults at his at his president. And in the monarchists in New England, he actually has to has to govern. So we'll 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 look at how he responds to, you know. Things like Louisiana and, and the growing, the deepening of the conflict in Europe, and how he handles those things as president, and how he expresses his feelings about these things in his in his letters. So, um, in the meantime, if you have any thoughts about this kind of decade of Jefferson's life, when he was Secretary of State and Vice President, but also growing in his optimism about a kind of future a rebirth of of American freedom, um, that he would be the leader of this this movement. Uh, if you have any thoughts about any of that stuff, please let me know. Uh, so leave your comments below uh, or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Next time, it'll be, I guess it'll be part four of my look at Jefferson's um, letters. Uh, there'll be seven parts altogether, so we're almost halfway there. Uh, that'll be part four of, of, my, of Jefferson's letters looking at the years 1800 to 1807. So Thanks, as always, for listening.